Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down box or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and once again we're here with Katie Goulis. And I hope it doesn't sound this way in my voice today, but in a sense I'm kind of on a downer, because I've come down from a mountain, a holy mountain. I just had the experience of ascending the mount. It's called Mount St. Macrina in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, where, if you were listening to this program, you heard us promoting and reminding you, inviting you to what was the annual pilgrimage that is hosted by the Sisters of St. Basil at Mount St. Macrina in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And pilgrimage and things of that nature really are a kind of a spiritual climbing of a mountain. And there, in that particular location, it literally is a mountain. It's a beautiful scenery down, it's out actually near Virginia, towards the border of Virginia in southwestern Pennsylvania, a beautiful area. And there are mountains there, and of course, beautiful scenery. And Mount St. Macrina sits on top of one of the mountains there in that area. And this is the home of the Sisters of St. Basil, the Byzantine Catholic Sisters of St. Basil, that host every year this wonderful pilgrimage. They've been doing it for 76 years, 76 years. There are people like myself and those even older than myself who attend this pilgrimage every year or just about every year. I met a man when I was there and he said, this is my 68th year, Father. I've been coming here for 68 years. It's incredible. I remember my father talking about when he was young and now I as his son go there as well and my father's grandchildren go also. But the reason why I'm a little bit down in a sense is I had the experience and you do when you attend something like this, you have the experience that the Apostles had, Peter, James, and John, when they went up the mount, Mount Tabor, and they touched the divine. They saw the divine. They experienced and witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on Mount Tabor. In doing so, they saw his divinity, the glory of his divinity. They touched God. They touched the divine. But they also saw the glory of his humanness. In other words, all that was best and glorious about being human, the way we are intended to be, and the way we will be in the end of time in heaven for those who make it to heaven with their body and souls reunited, spiritualized, in a glorious state. And they witness both this, the glory of the first intention and destiny of being human and the glory of God himself. 
and they didn't want to come down. They had this kind of bright sadness. They were overjoyed and glorified at what they saw, but at the same time, they were sad coming down. And they even asked Jesus if they could pitch tents there and stay. They saw the prophet Elijah and also Moses actually standing on either side of Christ, conversing with him. So it was an incredible, incredible vision. Now, whenever we go on a pilgrimage or when we do something like that, a retreat, we go to a special place. And especially when we meet people there and others are coming as well for the same reasons and for all their personal reasons too. And we celebrate the Eucharist. I can tell you, if you've ever had that experience, it really is touching the divine. It is touching all that is gloriously human. Because everybody's there for the same purpose, to be in a special place to do something very special. And it leaves you with something very special. In fact, it allows you even to meet special people, special relationships. People come there every year and they see each other and experience life and love and God with each other in that unique way that's unique to that place and to that event. And in that event, everybody, in a sense, is at their best. They bring, yes, their worst with them. In other words, they bring their hurts, their troubles, their sins. You know, they bring all that darkness with them, and they kind of lay it there on the mount. In fact, they lay it on the lap of people like myself, a priest who will hear confessions throughout the weekend at this pilgrimage. And many people come very hurt and very broken and very sad, lots of tragedy in their lives, lots of need for healing and forgiveness and for moving on. And they bring all that there. Yes, they do. They unload all that there, but they also walk away with hope and healing when they come back down that mountain. And they touch God and they touch one another in a very, very special way. This is what Eucharist is. This is what church really is. Church is, and especially in the Eastern churches, and this is why we like pilgrimages so much, church really is that touch of the divine. It's the touch of the eschatological. In other words, how we were meant to be, but more so how we will be in the end of time when it's all summed up in Christ in heaven. And we get a glimpse of that in the most poignant way, the most real way, the most special, even unspeakable and mysterious way, when we gather at a special place for a special reason, and we do so united in the Eucharist. The whole church is there. All of our bishops are there, the priests are there, the laity are there, visitors are there, and one of my favorites, the teenagers are there. The young people are there. I had the honor, once again, of working with the young people, the teen program at the pilgrimage, and they never cease inspiring me. We should have heard the one night at midnight as we were closing out the program for the evening and ushering the children to bed or to their tents and their campsites. We told the teenagers we will end with prayer. And so we processed singing Marian hymns to a beautiful little shrine on the mount. It's called the Shrine of Gethsemane. And inside this shrine, they have beautiful icons of the Dormition Mother of God and other aspects of the life of the Mother of God. And inside that little shrine... At midnight, the teenagers on that mount, together with myself and a couple of the sisters, we sang and chanted the evening, the nighttime prayer of the Byzantine church, which is the Compline Church. And I'm telling you, I think they're going to have to repair the roof on that chapel because those kids took that roof off when they chanted that Compline service in perfect, magnificent, unrehearsed harmony. Hearts and souls rising to God in ways that no one would ever imagine teenagers today could do. And in fact, people started to hear it, and they were coming out of their bedrooms, and they were joining us. And there were a group of ladies who heard, they came down to join in the prayer, 
And they said to us at the end, thank you, this was a miracle. So I've come down from that mountain, as many of the pilgrims have, and it is sad. There's kind of a bright sadness, because once you've touched the divine, nothing else can compare. But we touch the divine only so that when we come down, as did the apostles from Mount Tabor, so that we can face the world that is not so bright, and we can bring to them the light of Christ, that light that we saw and experienced on that holy mountain. See, when the apostles came down from Mount Tabor, Jesus started to talk to them about his suffering and death and resurrection. Now, they didn't really understand, and it was kind of a contrast for them. They were on this high, you know, they had seen the divine, seen what is gloriously human. They came down from the mountain. Christ did not let them stay. He says, no, we've got to move on. I show you this glimpse to embolden you, empower you, because what you're about to see will test you and frighten you. So I want you to remember this vision. And that's what we do when we celebrate Eucharist. We come to church. We come to places of retreat. We come to special places, especially of pilgrimage. We touch the divine and what is gloriously human so that we can then descend that mountain and take what we experience, that light of Tabor, to the world, to those closest to us, and then to the world. Percy, I'd like to thank the Sisters of St. Basil for providing this touch of heaven, as they do every year. And if you ever have a chance, please visit them. The Sisters of St. Basil, Mount St. Macrina, as we say in the Byzantine Church, it's Byzantine Catholic heaven. Many of you have also, and over the past several weeks, run into me at different venues including at Mount St. Macrina, and I want to just thank you for saying hello, coming up to me and saying especially that you enjoy the program here. This young man came up to me. He was an Orthodox Christian, and he said he really enjoys our program here, which is a real compliment because we're hoping that what we present here will also be inspiring to our Orthodox brothers and sisters. I would also like to thank Joan Larson and also our good friend and listener, Helen from San Mateo, California. I know Helen said, you don't have to say hello to me, Father, on the air, but I'll do it anyway, Helen, because you were kind enough to come up to me and tell me how much you love our program. So again, hello to Joan and to Helen and to all those listening, especially those who are Orthodox brothers and sisters. Many other people oftentimes ask me, what is the difference between the Byzantine Church and the Roman Catholic Church? They tend to want to have it all summed up in one sentence. We love sound bites in our culture today. Or they want to go to one source or one book. They kind of want to have that one simple answer. But the answer isn't really simple. It can't really be soundbited. It takes a lot of explaining. And we're going to try to attempt to explain some of that on our program today. To answer that question many of you have, what really is the differences between the Eastern churches, the Eastern Catholic churches or Eastern Orthodox churches, and the Latin Rite Church or the Roman Catholic Church? And to do that, we're going to have a little help from one of my favorite sources by a towering figure of our time in Eastern theology, Eastern spirituality. His name is Father Robert Taft. He is a Jesuit, and he's been writing about the Byzantine Church and the Eastern Churches and liturgy for just for decades. He's one of the most renowned names, probably the single greatest authority in English who writes in the English language on the subject of Eastern liturgy and spirituality. His name, again, is Father Robert Taft. He taught in Rome and also at Notre Dame University. I think he's beginning to slow down a bit in terms of his responsibilities. I think he may be sort of retired or semi-retired, but he still gets around a lot, and his writings have this great perennial value. So we're going to dig into a book he wrote, a little pamphlet he wrote some years ago that I always thought was one of the best articulations of these differences between the Eastern churches and the Roman Catholic Church. So please stay with us here. I'm Father Thomas Loya, here with Katie Goulis on Light of the East.
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again for the first time. I am Father Thomas Loya, and I invite you to Tabor Life Presents Married Life, as you always dreamed it could be, a retreat for married couples, which is on Saturday, September 25th. That's Saturday, September 25th. It runs from about 10 o'clock in the morning to about 6 in the evening. It's a day-long retreat at the Shrine of Our Lady of Mario Poach in beautiful Burton, Ohio, out in Amish country. To register, simply go to the website taborlife.org. That's T-A-B-O-R, taborlife.org. Limited seating, register early. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Ladies, would you like to know what it is that men really want? I am Father Thomas Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. In complement to a woman's body, the body of a man is designed to act upon the environment, to go up against things greater than he is. Men are designed to defend, protect, tear down, build, resist, invent, in short, to accomplish the task. Their greatest desire, therefore, is to be told that they have what it takes, they measure up, and have indeed accomplished the task. Conversely, a man's greatest fear is to be told that he is not adequate, that he is a failure. A man wants to see reflected in the eyes of his woman the essential message of his manhood. Yes, I do believe in you, honey. You are my knight in shining armor. Ladies, when a man hears that message, he will do anything for you. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Lay of the East. Katie Goulis and I here are going to try to answer, or at least chip away at the answer, what is the difference between the Eastern Rites, the Eastern Catholic Churches, and the Roman Catholic Church? We cannot sum this up in any one particular soundbite, as it were, or one particular point, so we're going to present a few points. First of all, we're going to talk about their origins, and again, we're going to use the help, as I mentioned, of a great, great mind of our time who has done so much work to articulate the answer to this very question. So Katie's going to read from a pamphlet written by Father Robert Taft. That's right, Father Tom. And the pamphlet is called Eastern Rite Catholicism, Its Heritage and Vocation. And the first question that comes up is, what is a rite? A rite is simply Catholicism as it has developed according to the culture and spirit of a particular people. The word rite, bearing as it does the connotation of ritual or ceremony, is perhaps a poor choice to denote an extremely complex and rich reality. For rite is not just liturgy, but rather a complete Catholic tradition, the unique way that a particular community of the faithful perceives, expresses, and lives its Catholic life within the one mystical body of Christ. The various rites of the Catholic Church are best known to us through their liturgies. This is understandable, for liturgy is the most perfect and official expression of the soul that animates each tradition. 
It is by no means the only expression, however. Rite also includes all the other elements we would expect to find in a Catholic culture. Schools of theology with their fathers and doctors, canonical disciplines, schools of spirituality, devotions, monasticism, art, architecture, hymns, music, and also, and this must be stressed, the particular spirit that creates this tradition. That in turn is fed by this tradition, and that is essential to this tradition. There is, of course, no question of one Catholic rite denying what another affirms. All rites are one in the union of Christ's church under the headship of the Bishop of Rome. All have the same sacraments, the same dogmas, the same moral code. The differences are a matter of emphasis. Each tradition stresses diverse aspects of the one Catholic, holy, and apostolic tradition common to all. In his encyclical Orientalis Ecclesia, Pius XII indicates clearly that our Oriental traditions include much more than liturgy. It is important to hold in due esteem all that constitutes for the Oriental peoples their own special patrimony, as it were, handed down to them by their forefathers. And this whether it regards the sacred liturgy and the hierarchical orders or the other essentials of Christian life, provided only that all is in full conformity with the genuine religious faith and with the right rules of moral conduct. For a lawful freedom must be allowed to each and every people of Oriental right in all their own peculiar genius and temperament, so long as they are not in contrast with the true and integral doctrine of Jesus Christ. An Oriental rite, therefore, is not just a different way of saying Mass. It is a special patrimony with its own feasts and fasts, saints and shrines. It is devotion to the Mother of God without the Rosary, devotion to the saints without novenas, devotion to the Eucharist without exposition or benediction, the observance of Lent without the Stations of the Cross. And what is more important, it is another genius and temperament, an Oriental ethos from which the these rituals and devotional differences flow. So as you can see, you can't sum it up in one word. <laughs> and we hear once again the brilliant words of Father Robert Taft, who does kind of sum it up to an extent, but with a number of words. And that basically is the differences start from largely a difference of perspective or emphasis. As you just heard Katie Reed, it is devotion to Mother of God, but in a different way. It may not necessarily have the rosary as part of the liturgical tradition in the East, but at the same time we have other devotions. So East and West always arrive at the same point. They arrive at the same point. That's why they're one church, one basic belief. They arrive at the same point, but they do so from different ways, ways that are particular to the culture and the origins, the history of the regions, either East or West. It's kind of like a room. Picture a room or a building that has several entrances. If you enter the building in one entrance and you look ahead of you, you will see that room from that perspective. But if you enter from a different door, you'll see it from another perspective. It's the same room, but you see it from a different perspective. But eventually you converge at the same point. And so it's actually good sometimes to enter rooms or buildings or even churches from different perspectives, from different doors, or to sit or stand in different places in the church. So you get like the full perspective of the church and the experience. Well, the church is like that, the Catholic Church, East and West. Now, some of the other specific differences, as it were, which again are based upon emphasis, like worldview in a sense. One of those is in the Eastern Church, we have very, very strong emphasis and expression of God as Trinity. We always end our prayers with a doxology, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the West, obviously they believe in the Trinity, of course, but their prayers tend to end with, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's a strong emphasis of Christ in the West. There is an East as well, but there is a stronger emphasis of the Trinity in the East. Again, both believe equally in 
the Trinity, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course. And we are both Christ-centered. But the emphasis in the East is strongly Trinitarian. In fact, we do a lot of things in threes. We hold our fingers together in threes to signify this Trinity. We bow three times. We sing things three times. Do a lot of things in threes. We're very, very Trinity conscious. Another difference stemming from the Trinity, if we move out from there, is this sense of God as transcendent. In other words, the starting point for the East is God and his utter transcendence, his other otherness. In other words, his inexpressibility. As we say in a liturgy, we go through all these words like saying, for instance, that God is ineffable, inconceivable, invisible, incomprehensible, ever existing and ever the same. In other words, we're always describing this very, very transcendent aspect of God. In the West, there's a strong emphasis on God as having incarnated himself in the human. So there's a very strong emphasis on the starting point being the human person as striving towards God. And this is reflected even in the architecture and the art. For instance, in the East, you'll oftentimes see the use of the architectural motif of an arch or a dome, symbolizing that this transcendent God has come down to us, has come down and heaven has met earth. In the West, the architecture developed along the lines of sort of the long verticality, sort of the human person striving towards God in that meeting point there. Again, it's two ways to arrive at the same point, but there's two different emphasis, and that's what helps to make the different rites, as it were. Another aspect that is different between East and West is how we articulate or look at the human person. Not that we look at it drastically differently, but there is a little bit of an emphasis which has implications actually in the moral life or in the ascetical life, in other words, into our growth and holiness. Again, I'm going to refer to the words of Father Robert Taft in his book to describe this difference. Father Taft says this, The devotional attitudes of Easterners and Westerners are in harmony with their views of the Church. The Westerner tends to emphasize the moral aspects of the sacramental and spiritual life, the strength received to aid him in his pilgrimage toward his final beatitude. Grace is seen as a principle of meritorious action, restoring to man the capacity for salutary works. The Oriental, the Easterner, however, sees man more as an imperfect similitude of God, which grace perfects. His life in Christ is a progressive transfiguration into the likeness of God. Less is said of merit, satisfaction, beatitude, than of divinization, transformation, the transformation of man into the image of God. Now notice here what Father Taft emphasizes, that in the West, I guess to put it simply, you could say there's kind of an additive dimension of grace. In other words, grace is added to the person. They merit grace. They sort of build up merit and grace, and this way they transform into holier and holier people until they can get to heaven. In the East, as Father Taft says, the man is seen as an imperfect similitude of God. In other words, the starting point is man in God's image and likeness, and grace not so much adds to it as it perfects it. It's almost like an energy. In the East, they use this word energy. It's like an energy that kind of triggers or maintains a kind of a transformation of that person. And this we call theosis or divinization. So there's, again, the same arrival point, that of holiness and oneness with God, the beatific vision and so on, the participation in the life of the Trinity. Yet it is looked at in a slightly different emphasis. And this has implications for the immoral and ascetical life between the East and the West. Again, different ways of arriving at the same thing. 
We have time for just one more difference, although we're just scratching the surface, because as you can see, we can't answer this in one sentence or just in one difference or one way or one soundbite. But that difference is seen in the feast days of the church. In the East, our feast days, in other words, our holy days, which we take very seriously, tend to be about events, events in the life of Christ or the Mother of God or, of course, of figures, you know, saints. In the West, yes, they have the same thing. They obviously have the event of Christ's birth and death and resurrection and so on. But they also have celebrations in the liturgical account of the West that have to do with ideas or concepts, like, for instance, Christ the King. Christ the King is a feast day in the Western Church. It's kind of like a concept or a title of Christ that is celebrated and observed. In the East, it's not so much titles or concepts, but more or less experiences or actual events that happened. And again, two ways that are equal in dignity. I always want to stress that. East and West are equal in dignity. They're just different in emphasis, and they're complementary. We need one another, just as man needs woman and woman needs man. And that is part of what makes up the beauty of this church that John Paul II said, breathes with both lungs. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya. I was here with Katie Gullis once again on Light of the East. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. (laughs) 